Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Would you stand with me and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even, sorry, <clears throat> for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose, whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. You may be seated. <clears throat> the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the goal of the Christian life for each and every one of us, for those of us who are believers, followers of Jesus, that is we are the goal of our lives is to honor and worship Jesus with all of our lives, not just a Sunday morning gathering where we just like sing songs, we open the Bible, maybe we serve in the kids ministry or as an usher, but our whole lives that they would bring honor and glory to the Lord. And so we've been talking about some wisdom, like how, Lord, how best can we serve the Lord with our lives? There are things in our lives, I think in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we talked about this uh, over a month ago, where Paul says, hey, there are things in life that are lawful, but not all things are profitable in life. There's things that are lawful, yes, you can do, but not all things are profitable. There are things in life that we know from Scripture that are black and white. Scripture commands of our lives. Thou shall not kill. <laughs> okay? You don't need interpretation. You don't need to look that up in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Be like, well, what does he really mean by murder? Like, no, like it's black and white. Just don't do it. Thou shall not commit adultery. 
Well, how about that? No, no, they don't stop it. Like you don't need to contextualize that question. But there are other things in life that are what we would call gray areas. Gray areas in our, in our lives that the Bible doesn't necessarily even speak to. Do you take that job with the company that yeah, you don't really know if what they fully support is what, you know, Scripture would support? And, or that, you, know, you don't know if you can really rally behind the product that they put out? Like, who do you vote for? Scripture doesn't tell you who to vote for. One of the controversial things is, do you drink alcohol as a Christian? Do you get a tattoo as a Christian? Like there are things that are gray areas. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is all about learning wisdom in the gray areas of life. Isn't that what we need is wisdom? Isn't that what we need is wisdom? Like, <laughs> I, I, I can't, I'm young and like I'm inexperienced. Like I recognize my great need for wisdom. Um, some of you are like, I'm wise. Okay, that's cool. But um, I need wisdom. But if you read through this chapter like we just did, at face value, you're like, this is completely irrelevant to like my situation right now. Like meat, sacrifice to idols, like should you eat it or not? Like what is this? Pastor Ryan, what does this have to do with my suffering? <laughs> what does this have to do with my job? What does this have to do with my relationships and following Jesus in Portland? Let me say this, this passage of scripture is very important for us as followers of Jesus in our culture. Because what I believe this gives us is a filter on how to have wisdom, what we need, in gray areas of life. How do we rightly follow Jesus? Isn't that what we want, to rightly follow him? When there are things in our life that, again, the Bible doesn't give us a black and white answer to, we want to know, Lord, we want to honor you. Isn't that our heart, Lord? We want to bring honor and glory to your name. So look at verse 1. Now concerning things, food, sacrifice to idols, we know that we have all knowledge, or we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Just as a reminder, if you're just visiting with us, this is your first time, this church in Corinth had written to the Apostle Paul a list of questions in a letter. And here in chapter 8, just like he was in chapter 7, he is responding to this church's questions. So the question that they're asking is, should we eat meat that has been already sacrificed for idols? It's been sacrificed for the very purpose of honoring these other gods, and should we take part of it? Now, to fully understand this question, to feel the, the weight of it, I want to share a little context first. Reminder, this is in ancient Greece in Corinth. This is a polytheistic culture where they have, uh, where they believed in different gods, many different gods. They had wooden statues, they had metal statues of gods all over the city. It was pluralistic. They had different beliefs, many different religions. They believed in Greek gods, they believed in Roman gods. In Acts 17, we're told that they believed in what they would describe as the unknown God, like just we want to cover all of our bases just in case we might have forgotten one. So the unknown God. And if you were in Corinth back in that time walking through the city, you would have seen temples and shrines all over the city. 
all dedicated for the purpose of worshiping different gods, different lords, different deities. And, and these temples and shrines, you would have there an altar where, where there were sacrifices. But then you would also have a dining area with several different tables or rooms, and it was open to the public. And so what was always happening at these temples is that there was festivals going on. There were celebrations going on. This was part of the culture there in Corinth where most people, they would go to these temples to celebrate anniversaries or birthdays or whatever you, you would have, like in our, our context. They would host religious festivities. It would all be at the temple. And what was often involved with being at the celebration at the temple was the sacrifice of animals, the eating of meat. Now, we live, thankfully, in a culture where we eat meat very often. It's very accessible, unless you're vegan or vegetarian, then you don't, unfortunately, eat meat. But like we can go right now, we can go down to Safeway, we can go to Trader Joe's, and we can get meat whenever we want. But in their culture, meat was not a part of their everyday diet. Meat was primarily for special occasions. For a, it was primarily you know, a place where they would eat meat at, at the temple. So um, that's where animals were slaughtered. And not just for eating meat, the purpose for eating meat, but again, sacrificing to these other gods. And so it was normal in their culture that when an animal was slaughtered, they would typically divide it into three parts. You had a, a, a one third was, was burnt as part of the offering to that God. Another third would be either eaten uh, by the family presenting the sacrifice or taken home or whatever. Um, and then the last one would go to the priest. And if the priest couldn't eat it, they would sell it, typically for a lot cheaper than what the other markets were going for. And so this, again, was a part of their everyday life. And for a lot of these believers in Jesus there in Corinth, this is what they grew up with. They most likely grew up with going to different temples, eating different meats that was all to honor the God or the goddess of that temple. And so these Corinthian believers, they're writing Paul and saying, listen, we follow Jesus now. And we know that these idols, that they're not real. It's just wood. It's just metal. It's been crafted by human hands. And so we can eat whatever we want. Our conscience is free of that. We are free in Christ. And so Paul's approach in responding to them is basically saying, you're right. You're right. In your belief, you're right. But you're wrong in your approach. Did you guys know that you can actually be right about something, but you can be wrong about how you're being right? It's a basic principle. You can be very right about something, but you can be wrong about how you're being right. And that's exactly what was happening with some of the people in the church of Corinth. And so Paul, he does, he responds to them. He writes them back to correct them. And you see in verse one that he says, yeah, you have knowledge. You have knowledge. Your knowledge is actually right, but your knowledge is making you arrogant. Maybe your translation says puffed up. I grew up with the New King James. I think it says um, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. He says your knowledge is leading you to arrogance and not to love. Look at verse four. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. 
For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Again, the question that this church had for Paul was something like, if a Christian eats meat that was first offered to idols, is he somehow participating in the worship of that idol? That's an interesting question. If this meat was at its origination, after the butcher, dedicated to the worship of false gods, false idols, false deities, whatever you want to call them, If we participate as a believer in Jesus, is that falling into the worship of that idol? There were strong believers who were advanced in doctrine here. And again, these were the ones who knew that the idols were nothing, that meat sacrificed to idols. It was still good meat, and they understood their right to Christian liberty, and they insisted upon eating the meat and not giving into this superstition belief, right? Superstitious belief that there was something more to these idols, they had the mindset of, well, if, if meat is offered to Zeus, it doesn't mean that Zeus is real. It just means that they wasted one third of the meat, like, you know, like in, in doing this. And Zeus would fall to them in the category of just being one of those so-called gods is what Paul says. And so Paul, again, he says, you're right about your doctrine. However, these strong believers, they're strong in their faith. Okay, these aren't the weaker brother here. These aren't the weaker Christian. These are the strong, mature believers. They understand right doctrine. They became proud of their knowledge and their understanding, and they boasted in their Christian liberty. And here's Paul's point. His point is this. The thing that you need to consider when you come to these gray areas is the authority and the supremacy of God. And he brings up God. There's only one God. Paul says, don't forget about him. There's one Lord, that Lord Master. What does he say about these things? And secondly, Paul talks about the conscience. Look at verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to that idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat. So Paul is saying that there, it's not a right or wrong situation, whether you eat meat or not. It's not a right or wrong. And for some, it's fine. It's good. For others, it violates their conscience. And what he's saying about that is that they have former associations with it. For some, before they came to know Jesus, they went to these temples. They participated in these celebrations where they're honoring these false gods. They're they're worshiping these false gods. And for them, even the smell of this meat brings them back to that world that was dedicated to the worship of these false gods. Just the smell, when they smelled the meat, when they were back in the temple, back in that context, Paul says, it draws them back. It's not just casually eating meat for them. It's not just like they're going to a casual barbecue. For them, the smell of this meat is like they're back worshiping false gods. It's drawing them back to their former selves. And he says, it violates their conscience. Now, 
what is the conscience? I would say the conscience is like an eternal moral compass giving you a sense of right or wrong. John MacArthur said about the, describes the conscience as a built-in warning system that signals us when something we have done is wrong. The conscience is to our souls what pain sensors are to our bodies. It inflicts distress in the form of guilt whenever we violate what our hearts tells us is right. But here's what we have to understand. And here's what I have to understand is that sometimes our conscience can be off. You can feel like, you, again, you can feel like something is wrong in life when it's actually right. You can feel like something is right when it's actually wrong because our conscience are shaped by many things. Our upbringing, number one. Our friend group, who do we surround ourselves with? The movies that we watch, the books that we read, the podcasts that we listen to. Really, whatever is normalized in society, that starts feeding people and shaping people. You know, I, I think of the example, my, we didn't do, well, video games were very little in my house when I was growing up, but like never was I allowed to um, play like really violent video games at all. I, I normally just played sport games like Madden and, you know, baseball or something. But, but what happens is though, is if you see enough violence and you're around enough violence and your video games are all about violence, then that begins to be normalized to you. You become desensitized to it. And all of a sudden, at one point in your life, something that, that would feel wrong, all of a sudden doesn't feel wrong anymore. And now you're participating it, in it. Again, our consciences can be seared and it can often take place. And so what we have to recognize is that when we talk about the conscience is that the word of God is our absolute and highest authority. For, for when it comes to determining what is right and what is wrong, we have to be shaped by Scripture. Amen? Truth? Yes, amen. Like, that's, like, don't take what I'm saying. Take what the Bible is saying. I think of Martin Luther, the great German reformer in the 16th century. He was protesting against the Catholic Church. And ultimately, you know, his, his issues were about the authority of Scripture Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he protested against the Catholic Church. He stood on trial for these, these beliefs. And as he was on trial, here's what he said. He says, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. Luther is saying, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And that's exactly what we need to do and what we need to be like as believers. We have to be aware that our conscience can be manipulated and it needs to be influenced by God's holy word. And the goal, the Bible tells us, is for those of us who follow after Jesus is to have a clear conscience. In Acts 24, Paul stood before Felix, the governor, and said this, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and man. And so to have a clear conscience means that we're aligning 
to what the Bible says is right and wrong. But Paul says again, not, not, not just to have a clear conscience before God, but also before man, before one another. And I think of Romans chapter 14, very similar passage as we're in this morning. Paul addresses this directly. And in Romans 14, he talks about that there are disagreements about dietary restrictions. Again, very similar conversation. Should you eat certain meats? Should you not? They were also uh, had differences about observing certain holidays and of celebration. And again, many people have different convictions about their conscience and where it lands. But in Romans 14, Paul says to the church in Rome, hey, it's okay that people have different convictions on these issues. Don't bind one another to your convictions. Romans 14, 5 says each person must be fully convinced in their own mind. And so your conscience, my conscience, is going to feel certain ways about certain things, and that's okay. But then he says in verse 19 of that same chapter, he says this, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So we all need to submit to the authority of God's word, but then we recognize that within that, again, there's going to be areas, there's going to be gray areas where our convictions are going to land in different places. And two people, man, they could be passionate about their convictions. They could be passionate and disagree, and that's okay. Now remember, when Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, they're being torn apart, and it's grieving his heart. The main primary issue was division was happening in the body. And Paul is calling this church, stop being divided, and he's calling them to unity. Unity around the essentials. And he says, for some of you in Corinth, you're free. You are free. It's fine for you to eat that meat that's been sacrificed to others, but for, but, titles, but for others. It's gonna violate your conscience and you shouldn't then. So not only should we view these issues in light of God, who he is, what his word says, and secondly, our conscience. But thirdly, we need to view this in light of the church. Again, in order to understand and to have wisdom in the gray areas of life, we must consider our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse nine. He says, but take care that this liberty, this right, this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, you know, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Again, Paul is saying, guys, you keep arguing your rights to eat meat. And you do have them. You keep saying you have this freedom in Christ to do so. And listen, you do. But I want you to notice as you're reading this chapter that their only focus around this issue is on themselves as individuals here. They're talking about my knowledge. They have this knowledge. And what does that knowledge do? He says it leads them to arrogance where they're looking down on people who don't know as much as them. And they're talking about my rights, but they're not taking into account the struggles of others when it comes to exercising their rights. They're, they're talking about their freedoms, 
But they're, they're, they're thinking about it in a sense of, I can do whatever I want. I'm free in Christ. And the result of this way of thinking about knowledge, rights, freedom, is what we see in verse 11. It says, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. Whoa, ruined. Maybe your translation says destroyed. You're boasting, you boasting in your knowledge, claiming my rights, rejoicing in my freedoms, like you can do whatever you want, all while ignoring other people's struggles. He says, you're ruining your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're walking them down a path that leads them back to their former life. That's the issue here. It's not you're not leading them into judgment. Some are legalists, okay? Some are just going to be like, I can't believe that you got a tattoo. That is not Christian of you, you know, or whatever. It's like, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not saying, don't stumble people into judgment because they're a Pharisee. Paul is saying, don't stumble your brother if they were once in bondage and by you exercising your Christian liberty brings them back to that same bondage. Don't stumble your brother or your sister. We need to understand that because I grew up in a, in a Christian culture where it was like, okay, you didn't want to stumble them into sin for sure, but then like you also don't want to stumble the Christian into judgment. And it's like, man, that's an added burden that's unnecessary. But look at, at the, the second half of verse 11. Paul, he's going to reorient this whole conversation around the cross of Jesus. He says, for through your knowledge, he was weak as ruined. But he says, the brother for whose sake Christ died. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ should change our whole outlook and approach to all of this. Because Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is not just an individual matter, okay? He didn't just die for canard, <laughs> He died for all of us, and he has brought us, the Bible uses terms of adoption. He's brought us into a family. You and I are a family. We're brothers and sisters. God's our father, right? And he's reconciled us together. And so look at verse 11 again. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so he says, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Whoa. When you sin, Paul says, against your brothers and sisters, you're ultimately sinning against Christ himself. Those are some powerful words, are they not? But look at verse 13. Look how he ends this. He says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, again, that stumbling is back into their way of life, back into the, the bondage that they were in. He says, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul knew, he says, Christ has sacrificed so much for me. How could I not sacrifice anything for my brothers and sisters in Christ. If I'm a, a follower of Jesus, how can I have the mindset of being all about my rights, my knowledge, when I can do whatever I want? Paul is saying, because of Jesus's sacrifice, because of your sin, he went to the cross and he gave up everything for you. Why wouldn't you sacrifice your rights for someone else? Why wouldn't you sacrifice your liberty? Why wouldn't you sacrifice your freedom so that none of your brothers and sisters would stumble? Listen, the cross should change our whole approach to this. 
Because it's through the cross that we see the goal of knowledge needs to be love. The goal of rights is love. The goal of freedom is, say it, say it long, say it strong, love, love. <laughs> love. And I want to talk about that, those three things real quick. You have knowledge, you have rights, and you have freedom. Because that's what Paul, he's appealing to. That's what they were arguing. That's what they were appealing to. And that's what Paul is addressing. He's reorienting them with the cross of Jesus. So he talks, he, he opens this chapter. He talks about knowledge. We have this knowledge. And Paul responds to them. He says, knowledge makes you arrogant. But love edifies. Love builds you up. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. I think one translation says now, when he says knowledge makes you arrogant, he's not saying that knowledge is bad. He's not saying that we should all become like anti-intellectual and turn our minds off. Listen, what we believe, do you know this? What we believe matters. Theology matters. Theology is very important. Theology is what we believe about God and everything in light of God. But his point here is that theology, even though it's good, it's not an end in itself. Theology is in service to love. Theology is meant to lead to transformation in our lives. Theology is meant to, uh, to build in us like a heart of worship and service to the Lord. And so, again, this is super important for us as a church because as a church, we care deeply about this. We care deeply about the word of God. We care deeply about theology. We value those things. But when he says to them, knowledge makes you arrogant, that word arrogant is translated as inflated. <laughs> he says, you have an inflated view of yourself because you read some books or you read a couple blogs. I know what this is like. When I was younger, I read a couple blogs. I was trying to do the deep dive into the whole Calvinism, Arminianism thing. And if you don't know much about it, it's not important for today. But like, I, I read a couple blogs. I'm like, I got it down. <laughs> like, what? I'm like 14 years old. <laughs> I got this thing down. I read a couple blogs. It inflated my head. Now, I might have known some new words. I might have, you know, anyways. I might, you know what I mean? Like, I might have known these things. But I used them as weapons to judge others who didn't hold my position or condemn others who weren't as enlightened as I was. And so again, theology is incredibly important for us as believers, but listen to this, the more we grow in our understanding of who God is, the more we should be led in worship of him, in service of him, and in love for our brothers and sisters. If it doesn't do that, you should really be wondering if you're learning more about God or just knowledge about God. Like, you know what I mean? Like, are you knowing him or are you knowing just about him? I was a part of a church in Vancouver for a couple of years and we had this brainiac of a guy in our church. Wow, he used words I've never, I, don't, I wouldn't even today know how to pronounce. He wrote a blog and he just laid out this systematic theology of how he figured out, you know, uh, what was right theology and all of that. And but you know, it was so sad. I mean, he's reading books like this thick and all, all of that. But you know, it was so sad. About two years I've known this guy. He would come, he would come to church. Not one time did he ever volunteer to serve Jesus. He was always just kind of like sitting in the back. Like, I, I know these things. Or 
If the pastor said something that was off to him, he would write a blog later. You know what I mean? Like, what good is your knowledge about God if it doesn't lead you more in love with him? If it doesn't lead you more to worship him? If it doesn't lead you to love and to good deeds? Again, the more we grow in our theology, the more we should be led in worship. And that's what the cross does. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes this letter, and it's a letter of doctrine and belief and teaching. And in verse 3, he says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So there's this problem happening there. And people have false doctrines. They're believing the wrong things. He says, be on the alert, nor pay attention to men myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. And so they're listening to all these stories and myths and they're starting to believe those. But the goal, he says, of our instructions is love from a pure heart in a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we need knowledge, but it's knowledge that leads to love. And in a few weeks, we're going to be in the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. You know what the Apostle Paul will, will eventually write in this letter? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, he says, I'm nothing. Love. Then Paul, he talks to them about their rights. And I'm going to just be very brief on rights because in, in chapter 9, in a couple of weeks when we get there, we're going to dive more into that. But the question about rights should not be, how can I express my rights? Here's the question. How can I love and serve others? Whether that's through using your rights, you love and serve others, or by laying down your rights at the service of others. And then Paul talks about freedom. You have knowledge, you've got your rights, freedom or liberty. And they have this mentality that they're free in Christ. But for them, that led them to a sense of selfish gain with no regard for others. And Paul says, that's not what freedom in Christ is all about. Yes, you're free, but you're not free to live a life that's built around you. You are free to serve God and to serve others. Look at Galatians chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom in an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the goal of the gospel has a twofold message. Yes, you're free. You've been set free. You're no longer in bondage. It's good news. But the gospel also says you've been free to serve and love others. So we need to make sure that in our freedoms that we're not a stumbling block, that we're not causing our brothers and sisters in Christ to go back into that sin, that old way of life for them. And I just want to read one more time verse 13 because this captures the heart of the Apostle Paul. It says, therefore... If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That kind of posture that the Apostle Paul has 
is the same one he's trying to instill into the church in Corinth. And it's the same one that the word of God is trying to instill in our hearts where we can say, look, I love meat. I love a good steak, right? (laughs) I love this. I love that. This is my right. I enjoy this. But I will drop any of that in one second if it helps me to build up my brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me ask you this morning, do you love your rights more than you love the body of Christ? Do you love your freedoms more than you love the the, the church, the, the brothers and sisters in whom Christ died? This is the kind of heart that we need to have. So we've been talking about the ancient world, temples, sacrifices, idols, and I know that can feel very distant to many of us. I don't think you're going out tomorrow and sacrificing idols and, um, or sacrificing meat. And maybe you will. I don't know. But uh, for the majority of us, 99.9% of us, we will not be doing that. But how do we follow Jesus and live and walk in wisdom in these gray areas today? There's three questions that we kind of looked at already that we have to ask. What does the word of God say about this? That's our first and primary authority in life. What does the word of God have to say? Oh, it doesn't explicitly say. Well, are there principles in the word of God that lead you to, his, to, to know the heart of God? How do you feel about it? What does your conscience say? And then thirdly, how, do you, how does this freedom or this gray area, how does it impact your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it going to cause them to stumble? Is it going to lead them back into that f- former way of life, into sin? And I think to add to that, like, how does this impact the church on a a larger scale? How does this represent Christ? How is what I'm doing in life affect the reputation of Jesus in Portland? That's what we should be caring about and concerned for. So again, those three questions, and there's probably more when you're trying to learn wisdom, but in this passage, there's three things to consider. And so I want to just walk through just a couple practical things because I think um, if all we know is about Corinth and we don't apply this to our lives, what good is it? (laughs) I think the Lord wants to transform us and the Lord wants to get a hold of our hearts and to speak truth for today for us. And so I'm going to bring up a very controversial topic in the church, and that is how do we as followers of Jesus feel about alcohol? Well, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible condemn the drinking of alcohol? Many people will be like, oh, but alcohol was different back then. It was watered down. It's not like, no, that's, that's not true. And I'll tell you later if you want to know more about that. Does the Bible condemn the drinking of alcohol? No, it does not. But we must also understand that alcohol is very powerful. And with anything that's powerful, it has to be dealt with moderation. The Bible says, again, alcohol is good. It also says, though, very clear that drunkenness is a sin and it's wrong. Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we should be concerned about in our lives. So again, drunkenness is not just wrong because it's a line that you're not supposed to cross. That's not what he's saying. Listen, the heart of God is that he wants you to be under the influence of God not under the influence of a substance that it's affecting your decision-making. Again, the call for us is to, how can we serve Jesus more? 
How can we be more free to love others and serve the Lord more? That's the goal of our lives. And so we, when we think about alcohol, we need to be very clear what the Bible has to say. Don't argue scripture where scripture is not there to argue. But we also have to be aware of the dangers and sin of drunkenness. And the next question you have to ask is, what does your conscience say about alcohol? Because for some of you in this room, you might abstain from alcohol because it represents bondage from your former life. That was my dad's story. I am so grateful God spared me from substance abuse of all forms. But my dad, when he radically gave his life to Jesus, he said, I am done with anything that represented and resembled that. And for some of you, you don't have the right to partake in alcohol because of the bondage that you were enslaved to. It would violate your conscience. But others of you, you have more of a freedom in that area. And we land again in different places. But here's the heart of the Apostle Paul. And I think the heart of Jesus is this last question is how does it impact our community? How does it impact our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because listen, you and I, we're free in Christ to drink alcohol. But listen to this. You're not just thinking about yourself anymore. You're thinking about the body of Christ enlarge your home group you're thinking about. You're thinking about your small group. You're thinking about everyone in this room. Do you, do you guys understand that there are many people in our church who have struggled with alcoholism? There might be people in your home group that str have struggled and the Lord has freed them or they're currently struggling. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm just saying there's an awareness that needs to take place. And so when you, before you post the photo on Instagram about you and your buddies at the wherever, be, be aware. Be aware of what this would do in the lives of others. How would this influence the lives of, of a weaker believer? You who are strong, you have this freedom. That you're the strong one, right? You're mature, you know that, that, that eating this meat is, is nothing because the idols are nothing, right? It's not a big deal. But to someone else, it represents something entirely different. Would you consider them? Would you be sensitive towards them? Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not profitable. Use wisdom. And there's so many different, and we're running out of time, there's so many different ways that we can apply this. In voting, who do we vote for? Voting is a conscience decision. You vote your conscience, right? You vote kingdom over country. But the Bible, you open the book of Proverbs, it doesn't say who to vote for in this midterm election. What are the principles that we find? Do your homework, do your research, vote your conscience, right? And some of you, you might land in different spots, unfortunately. <laughs> But are you being shaped by the word of God? Or are you, be, are you being shaped by your freedoms and your, your rights and your knowledge? Listen, we're gonna land in different, with different convictions in different areas, but we need to seek unity. We need to sacrifice for one another for the building up of one another in love. In love. There's an Old Testament story of Daniel. You guys know the story of Daniel? In chapter three, there's a black and white issue going on. 
Nebuchadnezzar, he erects this idol and he says that when the horn blows, you all are going to bow down to it. It's a black and white issue. There's one Lord, there's one God. And he says, you know what? I'm going to not bow down. I'm going to take the consequences. That's an easy application for us. Someone's asking you to bow down to an idol, to worship a false god. No, you take the consequence. But in chapter one, there's a gray issue. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have Daniel. All these guys, they're kind of in the, in, they've been, they're in um, Babylon. Babylon's a very pagan culture. They're in the kind of the, the university of Babylon. They're being trained. They've been given Babylonian names. And they're in the king's court. And yet they had this gray issue about they did not want to violate their conscience in eating the king's meat. And they went to the eunuch, the chief of eunuchs, and said, hey, we're, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna eat the meat. For whatever reason, the Bible doesn't say why they struggle with that. They're just like, there's a line that we just feel in our spirit, we're not gonna cross. And the chief eunuch's like, oh, but you guys need to eat this because if you guys look all like, you know, if you just go eat vegetables, you know, and, and drink water, you're gonna be like shriveled up and the king's gonna be really mad and he's gonna take it out on me. And so like, uh, Daniel's like, hey, just test us for like 10 days, test us. Just give us vegetables and water. And that's all they ate. And then at the end of 10 days, we're told that they were more strong. They were in better shape than all the other guys eating all the king's meat. The Lord honored their faithfulness to him and their conviction. They wanted to stand before the Lord with a clear conscience. And that's the very, very, very bullet point version of that story because I don't have time to get into it. But here's the heart, is that we would grow in wisdom on how to approach and handle gray areas in our lives. That we would, number one, view it in light of God's word. That's our highest authority. The psalmist would say, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. That we would listen to our conscience and that we would care more for our, and out of love for our brothers and sisters. I think of Romans 14 again. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Lay down your rights in response to Jesus having laid down his rights for you. And the last verse I have for you, you ready? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, the building up out of love. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.